You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Hey, everybody. I'm starting us off this week. So during World War II, millions of people were held in horrific conditions in German concentration camps and in Japanese prisoner of war camps. And oh, we're starting off light this we week. We are. We are. I, it, I, gets, it gets lighter from uh, here, though. Okay. It's not a light subject, but trust me, it does get lighter from here. Go. So most of the people who survived were understandably starving by the time they were liberated. But doctors noticed a really strange phenomenon that happened as these survivors slowly recovered and started to eat. Thousands of male former prisoners began lactating. They began producing milk. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, Kirk so, and I just made the same right. face, which is great for an audio uh, wow. format. But wow. yeah, I was just, I was speechless for a moment what? there. Just like, <laughs> well, what uh, was going I on? I will, have not heard this. I will reveal the answer later in the episode. Oh, but. Okay, because like <laughs> I, I know men can lactate. It's a thing that's sure. It's an ability that's there. Yes. Just, but why in the. Co- but well, but we'll get there. So a few weeks ago, I talked I think, about. I think she's going to tell us. I talked about the thylacine a few weeks ago, which is an extinct marsupial where the males also had a pouch. Yeah. Today, I am going to talk about another thing that we usually mm-hmm. associate with females that ma- males can sometimes do: lactation. So, as Rachel, as you as you indicated, oh, all right, fun. men sometimes can do this. Um, so my main source for this uh, was a good, though somewhat old, article from 1995 by Jared Diamond. Yes. The same guy who wrote Guns, Germs, and Steel. Apparently, he got his PhD in physiology. Who knew? I mean, anybody who's who's read his Wikipedia page knows that, but I didn't know that before. So how can this possibly work? Uh, As I'm sure you've noticed... Heard of Guns and Steel, for sure, but go. Yes. Male humans do have nipples, as I'm sure you've noticed. Yeah. Also, they do have breast tissue, as... I did notice that, yes. Yeah. All male mammals also have breast tissue, although not all species of... Mammals have males with nipples. Um, But if you inject pretty much any male mammal with the appropriate hormones, they can produce milk. Um, Okay. Which is is pretty interesting. Like, why does this happen? Uh, Yeah. So the main milk hormone in humans is called prolactin, which it's secreted by the pituitary gland, which is in the brain. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to go into this. A lot of hormone pathways and effects are extremely complicated and interlocking. Prolactin is no exception. I don't claim to fully understand it myself. But for our purposes, what you need to know is prolactin levels stay pretty consistently high during pregnancy and nursing, but are low otherwise usually. Um, And lactation doesn't happen during pregnancy because there are also high levels of estrogen and progesterone Mm -hmm. in those keep milk production from happening. But once the baby's born, those levels drop 
And also the, okay. the action of the baby sucking on the nipple also stimulates the release of prolactin and it starts milk production. Okay, right. so here's the thing. Which makes sense. Yeah. Something sometimes goes wrong in the pituitary gland, which is what releases the prolactin, and it can cause elevated levels in a person who is not pregnant or nursing. So usually this is a tumor. So if you got your old pituitary tumor, Ooh. yeah, you can have... That's not good. Yeah. So this can happen to both men and non-pregnant, non-nursing women. They can show breast development and lactation mm -hmm. in inappropriate times and places. Okay. Um, and things can also go wrong in a few other places, like the hypothalamus, which is in the brain. It all, it's all part of the same system. But going back to those World War II prisoners, what was going on there? Presumably, they didn't all have pituitary tumors, right? So what Diamond suggests in his article... I, one, would, one would presume, yeah. yeah. I hope not. <laughs> It'd be a pretty strange result. Um, what he suggests in his article is that as a starving person recovers, their glands in the body recover more quick, quickly than the liver. And the liver is where excess prolactin and other hormones are broken down. The liver's the, the thing that does all the, all the processing of stuff you want to get rid of in your body pretty much breaks it down. So the result right. is because sure. those glands are starting to kick up before the liver is back in order, you get elevated levels of prolactin in the blood leading to lactation. Oh, did wow. you follow me there? Okay. Did I lose yeah. you? Yeah. No, no, no. Uh, okay. Yeah. Cause like, it, I mean, it makes sense. Cause if you're, um, going through the one of the worst travesties ever uh, that has befallen, uh, you know, humans, and you're recovering from that, you're getting all these nutrients and things that you wouldn't normally be getting, and you're starting to recover. But yeah, the liver takes a. It's not a. What's the word? I mean, it's very important for your body to try to heal, but it's not as important as like. Your brain. Right. So is, but is the prolactin normally made at some level and filtered out by the liver? But then that wasn't happening. Like, why was there prolactin being made in the first place? That's a good question. I think it's, it's normally made at a low level. Um, but I guess in this case, yeah, made at a low level and then and okay. kind of destroyed by the liver to the extent that it's not being used. But in this case, it's just kind of built up because the lever wasn't working. Um, so now I'm going to go back to nipples. Okay. <laughs> so if you remember what I was saying about nipple, nipple stimulation can s stimulate lactation. Oh, no. Yeah. How can we forget? Yes. So this is apparently possible <laughs> yep. in humans and has been shown in other mammals too, like goats. And they're actually, mm -hmm. if you go on the web, there are websites with instructions for like adoptive mothers about how to stimulate milk production using a breast pump. People do this, apparently. It would be a lot of work, but uh, I guess it's possible. And there are anecdotal yeah. examples from history of women doing this. Uh, also, anecdotal accounts of men doing this. For example, if their wives died or became ill. You know, there's not a lot of info out there. And it's, it's possible that men who are successful at this may already have some 
you know, underlying abnormality of the pituitary gland or some other part of that milk production hormone chain. Right. It's sort of a it's sort of a self-selecting population. You you hear about the times that it worked, Not and you generally don't hear about the times it didn't work. Right. So it's there's some exactly. selection bias going on there. Exactly. Mm. Possibly. Possibly. So all this is kind of fascinating, if a bit of an anomaly. But you might be asking, are there any species where males regularly lactate as a normal way of contributing to raising their babies? And the answer is... Okay, uh, Victoria, Victoria, are there any uh, mammals where the males regularly uh, breastfeed? Why, yes. Meet the Dyak Dyak fruit bat and the Bismarck masked flying fox. These are both... um, Okay. Fruit bat species found in Southeast Asia and Oceania. Very little is known about them, but many of the male ones that have been captured were lactating. And that's about as much as we know about male lactation (laughs) in these two bat species. A ripe area for research, apparently. Yeah. Um, And that's what I have about male lactation today. And there you go, even tied into our October theme by talking about bats. There we go. So, gosh, it just, it, we just keep on rolling. I love All it. Right. And, when we, and when we get back from the break, it'll be Kirk. <laughs> Strange by Nature podcast is brought to you by listeners like you who have joined the Society of Strange, our membership group on over at patreon.com slash strangebynature. Society of Strange members can join at one of three different membership levels and help support the show and also get some fun stuff like water bottle stickers or access to a super secret content. So a thank you to those who have joined already to help make this podcast possible. If you haven't joined yet, we'll see you soon over at the Society of Strange at... Patreon.com slash strange by nature. See you soon. Back in episode 35, uh, Victoria told the story of the mythical Minyoko, I believe it's pronounced, uh, which was a, a mythical creature that was said to be like a giant earthworm, right? Right. So when you described it as like digging tunnels, it immediately reminded me of another creature that may have also led to the creation of the myth. Ooh. And uh, I'm the reality is probably that the Minyoko is like an amalgam of a bunch of different actual animals and pieces of evidence. Uh, but I wanted to focus in on um, these large tunnels that you talked about and the, and, and the burrows that supposedly they would make. Hmm. So before I tell you about my creature, though, I have a couple questions specifically for Rachel. All right, bring it on. Are you ready, Rachel? Probably okay, not. Okay, three Let's questions. Go. Three yes or no questions. They're really simple. All right. Okay. Do you have any tattoos? Yes. Okay. Um, have you ever worn a knit winter hat in the summer? <laughs> I don't think so. Hard. Are you sure? Probably yes. Do you have a man bun? Okay. No, she doesn't have a man bun, but no. we're, you're on the right track there. Here's my third question. Feel have you ever attacked? eaten avocados on toast? Had it on a sandwich. On a sandwich. Okay. So your answers pretty much check out. I, <laughs> I think it's fair to say you are a millennial. Is that correct? Oh, that's where you're going. Yes. That's yes. where I'm going. I am yeah, a millennial. Yes. Yeah. Now, okay, that last one, avocados, I mean, you know, uh, your hair is kind of avocado colored today. It but is. The, 
it's sort of a big stereotype that, you know, like millennials love their avocados. Avocados are super popular right now with, you know, an entire cross-section of the population, right? Mm-hmm. So this may seem strange here, but there's actually a connection between avocados and these large South American tunnels or burrows that Victoria mentioned. Okay. Hmm. I was wondering where you were going with this. I know. I, it seems strange, but let me explain. I have an idea. So let's, I'll be interested to see if it plays out. Okay. Let's start with the burrows, right? Now, in multiple locations in South America, you can actually find giant burrows in the ground. And when I say giant, I mean you would be forgiven for not even recognizing them as burrows. Oh. They look more like caves. Okay. They are... Oh, no. Massive. They're tall enough for adults to stand up in with headroom to spare. Wow. Some of the largest ones are two meters high and four meters wide. That's a burrow? Oh. A burrow. They can be up to 100 meters long and branch off into different rooms and tunnels. So you can imagine if you found something like this, you, you can... Were these made by, like... Well, we'll get in there. What is it made by? So trying to figure out, you know, uh, you'd be forgiven for assuming that they were created by like a geologic process, maybe, or even humans. Yeah, or a cave. But there is one thing, yeah, there is one thing they all have in common, though, that when they found these burrows, the walls are all covered in claw marks. (laughs) So these are indeed burrows and not caves. Okay. But, you know, if someone had found one of those and you had no evidence what created it, your imagination might run kind of wild okay. and think that but some of the other mysterious high, things you'd seen. Four yeah, meters so like, wide. You know, yeah. Claw big, marks? Right? This <laughs> no. is terrifying. Maybe it won't go in there, right? Yeah. Now, I'm going to tell you what they're made by. Researchers believe the tunnels were made by giant ground sloths okay. back in the Pleistocene. I actually so almost talking, made a joke. Was it a ground sloth? What was it? It was. So this is like the Pleistocene, if you don't know, is like 2.5 million to as recently as about 10,000 years ago is what we call the Pleistocene. Humans were certainly around uh, Mm -hmm. by the end of the Pleistocene and likely encountered some of these creatures. I think some of the giant sloths are thought to have gone extinct because of hunting from humans, in fact. Uh, We know the last giant ground sloths went extinct uh, about 4,200 years ago. So perhaps combined with other sightings of strange animals in the forest, this could have you know, led to the idea of some sort of giant worm that made these tunnels. I don't know. There's sort of just a theory that I was throwing out there, but I think it's, it's, it's interesting. Definitely. Now, what does this have to do with the avocado? Well, yeah, where are you going? I've never really given the avocado any thought. It's a really strange plant. <gasps> and I know where you're going the with the avocado. Yeah. Sweet. See, first of all, okay, let me, let me ask you, do you know what orchids and avocados have in common? Um, Are they, they have very specific pollinators? Not where I'm going. Okay. Just like we talked about when Victoria talked about hammer orchids <laughs> a while back. Yeah, the, the word <laughs> orchid comes from orchis, which means testicle. Ah. And similarly... The root word for avocado in the Aztecan Tekken language also means that's testicle. I can absolutely see where that's coming from. But at least I, I can too, yeah. 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 <laughs> but here's here's one thing. I've heard that little factoid or a tidbit before. Um, and 
it's it's not quite the same because as far as I could find, the fruit is the primary usage of the word avocado, and testicle was a secondary usage because of how it looks. So basically, <laughs> it'd be the same as in these days as someone saying like, "Oh, the baseball hit him right in the avocados." <laughs> like, it's the word has been used that okay. way apparently. <laughs> Uh, since the beginning. <laughs> so, uh, oh, anyhow, I, I want you to think about the avocados. Uh, that's the, the fruit, avocados. Right. And uh, consider the seed, right? That's that huge. seed inside is enormous, right? Yeah, it's huge. It's too big. And there's just, there's just this one huge seed inside. And from an evolutionary standpoint, it doesn't make a lot of sense. So, in general, in nature, the reason sweet fruits exist is literally for our enjoyment. Mm-hmm. And by our, I mean animals, not yeah. just humans. So I mean, we sweet, can enjoy sugar, them too. <laughs> we can. We are animals and we do enjoy fruit. Uh, sweet, sugar-filled fruit is energy intensive for plants to make. It takes a lot of work to make that fruit. And the advantage for the plant is that animals like to eat fruit. So um, animals will often eat fruit whole and eat all those seeds. And after traveling uh, a day's journey, the animal defecates and drops the seeds in a nice pile of fertilizer, and then a young new plant grows perhaps many miles from the parent. Mm-hmm. And that's a great way for plants to spread, right? Yeah, they can't move. Think about, the avo- think about the avocado. We throw the seed out. Uh, many, we certainly don't swallow it whole. That would be, whew, That'd be, a <laughs> that'd be tough. Uh, I mean, maybe it could, for mul- but for that would be a bad idea. Multiple reasons why that would be tough. Um, you know, smaller mammals might tr- eat the avocado and would likely eat the fruit, and they might, like, gnaw away at the seed until nothing remains. They're not going to swallow it whole. Although, I will note, avocado seeds are mildly toxic, so more than anything likely, the seed would just get left on the ground, probably right below the shading parent tree, yeah. which is, like, the worst possible place to germinate and defeats the purpose of having fruit. So... Here's where we come full circle. Researchers believe the avocado is actually a holdout plant from the Pleistocene that no longer has the original host animal to spread the seeds. Huh. It is thought that avocados were originally eaten and spread by... The ground sloths. Yeah. So they, these were big. They were as large as elephants. <laughs> uh, they were more than capable of eating the fruit whole and depositing a whole pile of the seeds, frankly, later on. Mm-hmm. Uh, the largest was the uh, Megatherium Amer- Americanum, which was 3.5 meters tall. That's like 12 feet <laughs> and weighed up to four tons. Four tons. Uh, there were like That's about 100 different ty- types, though, of uh, giant ground sloths. So... They weren't all that big. That's the biggest one. Incidentally, you can see a skeleton of the uh, Megatherium at the Field Museum in Chicago as part of their Evolving Planet exhibit. Uh, I've, I've seen it there. It's it's so cool. So I cool believe it. So lucky for us, and avocado, avocado toast loving people everywhere, humans like avocados too, and we have been planting and domesticating them for a crop as a very long time. Uh, we have essentially saved avocados from extinction by becoming the the new species that eats them and spreads their seeds around. Uh, The love of avocados, I will point out, though, is not without problems. Right. So I don't know if you're aware of this. Every single avocado takes 60 gallons of water to grow. Yeah, I believe that. So they are incredibly water-intensive. 
probably not a big deal if there's like a plant growing out in the jungle, right? But like if you're planting a farm of them, the water use is astronomical. So much higher. Yeah. And if that wasn't problematic enough, um, you know, the amount of water being used is becoming more of an issue with climate change as well, as there's less water to go around. The huge avocado craze kind of going on right now is also a huge problem as forests are being cut down to grow more of the profitable fruit. And this is actually currently destroying the winter habitat of monarch butterflies. So avocados are kind of contributing to them becoming an endangered species. So that's it's so upsetting. Super, yeah, super not great. Think about that every time you're eating an avocado. Also, large I, problems I with will now. Um, people. Yeah, people living next to the farms having respiratory problems from all the chemicals being used. And on top of that, criminal gangs in the area uh, in Mexico have found out there's a lot of money to be made. And so there's been now gang warfare associated with avocados going so far that some people are now referring to avocados as the blood fruit. Uh, so yeah, that's really not great. But the story of the avocado and the connection to wildlife and the environment, it continues to change over time. And it does go to show how successful fruit is as a method for spreading your seeds, especially if you can attract the attention of humans. So at one time, you know, avocados were restricted to a pretty small part of Mexico, and now avocados are grown around the world, even though ground sloths, the giant ground sloths, are extinct. That's what I have for you today. Interesting, if uh, ending on a sad note there, Kirk. Yeah. Well, it's it's good for the avocados. It is. <laughs> it is. Yep. Yeah. Well, let's take a break then, and everyone can ponder their avocado usage. And uh, when we come back, Rachel will have an amazing, uplifting story for us. Optimistic of you. I'm, I'm making promises she may not be able to keep. <laughs> See you in a bit. All right, everyone. Uh, welcome back. To keep up with uh, my personal theme of doing something extra kind of spooky uh for halloween in the month of october uh yeah, sorry ground sloths weren't all that spooky not so much no. um i wanted to talk about a creature that i haven't talked about yet clearly but i need to and it is in the ocean all right such a surprise is it near australia or I guess we'll find out. We'll, you'll find out. One of them might be. All right. So first, we're going to travel back in time. Let's say about the 1400s, okay? So okay. the three of us, we're all, we're going to get on a boat. We're in disguise, of course, as sailors. Um, <laughs> right. No risk of being or getting scurvy for us. We I brought vitamins for us. Uh, and we're just going to be anthropologists on this trip. We're going to be studying okay. the overall interaction of the crew and seeing what all is happening. Uh, we start listening to the different stories and the different shanties they start singing that come up on our journey on the ocean. And we start to hear tales, like different tales from these sailors uh, of this beautiful creature. Oh, boy. Okay. Oh. Uh, they say we're going to go that, with a sea monster. Ooh. We'll see. <laughs> they say that they've been around for just millennia. They've been talked about and been in the myths surrounding the ocean since 
the Babylonian times, like 4th century BCE. Uh, all the cultures that they know of and all the cultures that we know of as the anthropologists have some sort of version of this creature. Hmm. Uh, they say that the scales shimmer in the sun and their voices call to the sailors, beckoning them uh. maybe to their deaths. Uh, we hear another sailor pipe up. They heard that they were able to summon storms or are even the spirits of the waters themselves. This seems so reasonable. It Truly, truly. I mean, we are in the 1400s. The smell is getting to us. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. okay. Uh, That's why it seems reasonable is because of all the body odor? and what, Is that what you're saying? Probably, and the fact that they don't have... Uh, Drinkable water, most of the time, is mostly alcohol, as far as I am aware. Uh, I am, of course, talking about mermaids. Ah, okay. Okay. A brief description of mermaids, uh, as far as (laughs) we kind of know... I, okay, is this, this is, is this not, a scientific description. What are we? Just a general what we how many think meters of long when we is think a mermaid? of mermaids. Okay, which are okay. not I'm real, which it, are right? not real, I will say that. Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Not real? No. This is, ladies and gentlemen, the breaking news on the podcast. I know, mermaids, they're not real. Uh, <sighs> so mermaids, generally speaking, when they're described but in mermen, or more mermen, which also are there, um, they generally have an upper tor- torso and head of a human and the tail of a fish. Uh, mm-hmm. And like I said, they date back to Babylonian times, uh, which is amazing. Uh, there's different versions all over from the Japanese kappa, uh, which is more animal than human, uh, to the African uh, mamiwata, which is actually a water spirit and uh, a god, as far as I, from my research, could tell, at least. Um, would, uh, would the sirens fit in with this? group as well yes sirens would also fit into this group okay um generally speaking there's a also the selkies uh which are oh yeah uh, humans being uh-huh. uh, seals and then they're able to shed a coat when they come on to uh land I had a, there's I had a lot a of different things when i was a kid about selkies oh they're so fun uh but I wanted to talk about what the inspiration was uh, and the potential real-life animal for these myths. And it's not uh-huh. one that most people uh, would consider, you know, since most mermaids are considered to be beautiful women entrancing the sailors. You wouldn't think you're they'd be... You drink enough and you're lonely enough on that ship. You know, you see a lot of... You see a lot of things. things. Yeah, uh, including uh, thinking that a manatee is a mermaid. <laughs> Oh, boy. <laughs> okay. Uh, so Christopher Columbus, bear with me, uh, claimed to have seen a, man, uh, a mermaid on his 1492 right. trip. And he talked yeah, about he, it. Let's be clear. He claimed a lot of things. He claimed so many mm-hmm. things. We don't need to go into that. No. Uh, and he said that it wasn't as beautiful as stories had suggested. This okay. is well, all right. fair, uh, and this is actually generally thought of as the first 
description in Western science of a manatee. Uh, okay. And there are some things that give some credence to why we would think a manatee would be a mermaid. Um, the overall, they're generally around in the ocean. They like to be in more shallow seas or along the coasts. Uh, mm-hmm. But what brings it is that they have a wide, flat tail that's similar to a fish um, somewhat, except more whale-like because it's horizontal and not vertical. Yeah, like a mammal, it's going to be more of a horizontal, like a fluke. Right. Although if you Um, think about it, depictions, at least in in Western culture, you see in mermaids have that more horizontal... horizontal tail. Yes. Yeah. But that's what you're saying. That's why it would lend credence, you're saying? Exactly. Because it has that? Yes. Okay. Uh, the also the silhouette when they are up near the surface of the water is very different from that of a whale or of a dolphin or a shark because it doesn't have that pectoral fin uh, okay. that right. uh, has that silhouette. So it looks like just a body going over um, maybe catching a look and you just see the bare side of it and might be a mermaid. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, yes, you're as skeptical as I am. I have a problem also. <laughs> I have a geographical yes. problem, Rachel, which maybe you're going to yeah, address yeah. here. Victoria and I are both wearing our skepticals right now. Aren't Fair. manatees only found in the Americas? They are not. Uh, so there oh. are several different... Uh, there are... Uh, there is an order uh, of... It's actually called Sirenesis. Nice. Love it. And the dugongs are part of this, but there are three different species of manatee, one of which is in the West India Ocean, or West Indian Ocean, sorry. Uh, There's an Amazon manatee as well, and then there's the kind that we are more used to seeing, in like Florida and the Americas that are more. Okay. So I was just wrong. That's fine. Yeah. Um, It's all good. That's what we're here for is to learn. So one, a few strange things about manatees uh, is just that they're okay. So their closest living relatives that are in the same order as them is the dugongs. Okay. So that's their technical closest living relative. You go step back. Any ideas what their closest living relative is today? Is it a terrestrial mammal? Yes. I feel oh, like I've read this okay. before. Is it? It's like an elephant or hippopotamus or something like that, isn't it? I was kind of going the hippo route as well, but I wasn't sure if that was quite right. It is the elephant. And elephant, actually, nice. some of the distinction to go back to looping back to uh, your nipple talk there uh, about male lactation <laughs> there, Victoria. One of the ways that they are able to see that relation is manatees and elephants actually have teats in, underneath, like, uh, so manatees have an underneath, one underneath each of their flippers, whereas uh, elephants oh. have one uh, between the, by their legs, as far as I could tell, I guess. Huh. Okay. Weird. But it, that was one connection that they were able to make. But another closest living relative is the hyraxes. 
Oh. Oh. Yeah. Which are do not look anything like the uh, manatee. They are a fuzzy little creature. Yeah. Yeah. Weird. Hmm. Real weird. It's fun. Um, so these creatures, manatees, can weigh anywhere from 880 to 1,210 pounds. Oof. That's a big mermaid. Um, that is a big uh, mermaid. That's a big mermaid, yeah. <laughs> they are anywhere from 9 feet 2 inches to about 9 feet 10 inches. That's uh, a tall that's mermaid. In length. That's a very tall, that's a very long mermaid. But they have been known to get up to even 15 feet long. Wow. Which is really long. Uh, they have a large, flexible, and prehensile upper lip, which is Elephant bizarre. alert. Elephant alert. Yeah. Uh, and super attractive. I mean, that's so what every sailor dreams of. It's, it's beautiful. Uh, but they use it not only to gather food, but they use it for social interaction and for communication. Uh, what they'll do is they walk with their flippers on the floor of the ocean. Like walk, i using air quotes on a podcast is great. Um, Stunning. And when their flippers detect grass or vegetation, they'll scoop it up and bring it to their mouth. And their mouth is able to actually like splits and they're able to like lop it into their mouth and gather it in. So wow. they have uh, food. Uh, because they have to eat like they eat like 10 15 percent of their body weight every single day which uh supposed to be probably why they're sometimes called their other name the sea cow the sea cow yeah that is one of the reasons uh and just because of their docile kind of gentle nature so their teeth uh they generally have uh just cheek teeth as an adult uh, and what they'll right. do, and they don't have, like, uh, canines or incisors. What they have is four rows of teeth, and they are constantly growing new ones. So they'll grow new teeth in the back of their mouths. And then the oldest will be most forward-facing, and they'll, they will fall out constantly. And they are constantly growing new teeth. And they move forward kind of wow. like a conveyor belt, which is bizarre in a mammal. Um, so, so when you that, say yeah, four so rows. I'm trying to picture this. If you're saying four rows of teeth, does that mean like on the left bottom you've got four teeth and the left top you have four teeth? Or just like, like there's, there's six, about 16 total? There are four quadrants to your mouth. So there's one row in each quadrant. Yeah. So it's a row in each quadrant of your mouth. So like what? Okay. Just, just like we have a conveyor belt just no on the top. upper left, a conveyor belt on the upper right, a conveyor belt on the lower left, a conveyor belt. Right. On and the each right. one generally has about four teeth at a time. Yeah, generally, like okay. well, six to eight. The four. I All think right. the I four is throwing it. you off. The four is just the yeah. Four it is. It's, it's that they're in four different quadrants, <clears throat> but they can have six to eight in each quadrant. Yeah. Woo! All right, well, I got there. I got there. I hope the listeners did too. I'm glad you got there. <laughs> Carry on. Uh. The other weird thing about mammal, uh, for the manatee as a mammal, is they only have six cervical vertebrae. So cervical vertebrae, if I remember right, that's that's our neck. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's yeah. correct. So most mammals have seven. That seven, is correct. Right. Uh, so that's bizarre, and I'm not exactly sure why they only have six. Uh, but they don't. 
they don't tend to need to move their neck a ton. Their flippers do a lot of the work moving the food up to them. <laughs> they, they look like they're kind of all neck or all, I mean, not all, all neck, like body. They their head is just like shoved into their budget <laughs> body. Yeah, like there's not, no neck monsters. There's not a lot. I don't know how much head movement's going on. Uh, a few fun things. Uh, Scientists have found that their intestines are about 45 meters long, which is unusually long. Wow. Oh, <laughs> wow, okay. Yeah. I uh, need a lot of room to digest all that plant material, I guess. Yeah, they need a lot to be able to digest all that plant material and the cellulose. They don't have uh, a complex stomach. They have a simple stomach, very similar to, like, horses. So they actually are, like, uh, use a hindgut to help that process out uh in other weirdness that's actually really fun um manatees have been shown to have complex associated learning very similar to like dolphins uh and they have really good long-term memory which is really fun uh just thinking about how like if you raised a manatee they would remember you just Aww. so lovely how how did you find in, in your reading, how's their singing voice? Not, well, I mean, they do make a wide variety of sounds. Uh, okay. But I don't think we would like that right. type of music. <laughs> well, it sounds like the, the, maybe, again, one creature that contributed to... Multiple uh, different... A myth. The, the fortified, you know, wine and rum may have also contributed to the myth. But maybe I, I just a little saying. bit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, uh, I mean, I think all of us know about the plight of the manatee, uh, so I don't want to end us on that really sad note. There's a lot of conservation like happening. Like I did, yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of conservation happening, <laughs> and manatees are just really fun. So, and apparently mm-hmm. are the ins- potential inspiration for mermaids. Cool. Yeah. Thanks. That's all I have for you both today. Thanks, Rachel. See everybody next week. See everyone next week. Bye. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of the strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.